You're tuned to WFHB. Volunteer-powered, listener-supported, Community Radio for South Central Indiana. Good afternoon. Reporting for WFHB, this is Benedict Jones. And I'm Cade Young. This is the WFHB Local News for Thursday, November 16th, 2023. Later in the program, Mayor-elect Carrie Thompson sent a letter to current Mayor John Hamilton asking him to refrain from making any strategic decisions before the end of his term. More in the top half of tonight's program. Also coming up in the next half hour, the Bloomington City Council approved a resolution regarding the operation of a joint capital improvement board between the city and the county for the Monroe Convention Center. That's coming up in your daily headlines. Incoming Mayor Kerry Thompson sent a letter to current Mayor John Hamilton asking him to refrain from making any strategic or discretionary decisions before the end of his term. In Mayor-elect Thompson's letter, she wrote, quote, Such vacancies would include, but not limited to, signing new contracts or extensions of contracts, purchasing or conveying property, and making future board and commission appointments, end quote. Thompson did say in her letter that she appreciates Mayor Hamilton's decision to let vacancies remain and allowing acting or interim staff to serve. She also welcomed to engage in conversation with Hamilton on matters that may impact her tenure. She wrote, quote, please accept this request with the spirit in which it is intended, which is respectful, collaborative, and with the best interests of Bloomington in mind, end quote. Mayor Hamilton wrote a letter to the city council in response, saying he was very surprised to receive Thompson's letter. He said that Thompson's request was, quote, neither appropriate nor possible, writing, quote, I make decisions daily that affect the future of the city for upcoming days, weeks, months, and years. It is my responsibility as mayor to do so, and I will continue to do so, end quote. Hamilton said he has reached out to Thompson over the phone to discuss the matter. Mayor-elect Kerry Thompson will take office on January 1st of next year. At the November 15th meeting of the Bloomington City Council, the council heard a resolution regarding the operation of a joint capital improvement board between the city and the county for the Monroe County Convention Center. Deputy City Clerk Sophia McDowell introduced the resolution. Resolution 23-22. To approve an interlocal cooperation agreement between the City of Bloomington and Monroe County, Indiana for the operation of the Bloomington slash Monroe County Capital Improvement Board and the Convention and Visitors Commission. The synopsis is, this resolution approves the interlocal cooperation agreement between the city and the county for mutual and collaborative support of an expanded convention center, any related amenities and necessary related entities, including the Capital Improvement Board, CIB, and Convention and Visitors Commission, CVC, managing the expansion project and convention center operations. 
Corporation Counsel Beth Kate elaborated on what the resolution entails and provided some background on the interlocal agreement. So Resolution 2322 approves an interlocal agreement between the city and Monroe County for collaborative support of the Convention Center expansion and the entities that will be involved in the project, including the Capital Improvement Board uh, that the county created in July and the Convention and Visitors Commission. Uh, the interlocal reflects extensive discussions and negotiations between the city and the county uh, with the goal of creating a solid and collaborative path forward that will produce a first-class convention center expansion for the good of our community. Uh, I want to give a shout-out uh, to Greg Goodnight, former mayor of Kokomo, who's here with us tonight, uh, whom Mayor Hamilton engaged to participate in these negotiations and who's been a great help. Uh, so I'll also give a shout out to John Weichart in the corner over there, who's actually the president of the CIB that was created as well. Um, so I just want to quickly describe the landscape in which this agreement uh, sits and then describe the key features of the agreement, and then I'm happy to take questions. So the city and the county have been discussing a convention center expansion, as you all know, for a number of years before talks stalled around 2020. Uh, those discussions involve questions of location, design, scope, uh, and related amenities like a hotel or a garage. Um, last year, the city and the county expressed interest in renewing pursuit of an expanded convention center, while the administration and the commissioners disagreed over the best structure uh, to manage design and construction. All agreed that if a capital improvement board were created for this purpose, an interlocal agreement would be needed to address uh, respective contributions and activities of the city and county to uh, accomplish that work. So in July, as I mentioned earlier, the commissioners created the Capital Improvement Board to manage the current and the expanded convention center. Uh, members have been appointed uh, by both the executives and the councils, including yourself. Uh, as I mentioned, uh, President Weichart is here. Uh, they selected their seventh member, uh, Jim Silberstein, at the meeting last Wednesday of the CIB. Uh, since the summer, the city and the county have been negotiating the interlocal agreement that you have before you, uh, which sets out the respective city and county contributions and involvement in the project. Uh, the interlocal requires approval by the city and county executives and the councils, since all are involved with the resources and the activities uh, that this agreement covers. Mayor Hamilton did sign this today. Uh, briefly, the agreement contemplates that the CIB will manage the design, construction, and at a high level, uh, the operation of the uh, expanded convention center and ultimately, the, obviously, the existing convention center as that uh, is, is merged into the uh, big expanded convention center. Um, the agreement reflects the party's desire to, to leave the design and construction of this to the CIB, whose members reflect experience and expertise in large capital projects. Uh, design and construction will be funded through debt issued by a city-created building corporation, uh, like the county did for the original convention center, uh, with the debt paid uh, by the city as lessee of that expansion uh, using food and beverage tax revenue. So the building corporation would own the ex uh, expansion and the property it sits on as it needs to do as the debt issuer. It needs to hold on to that uh, until the debt is paid off. Uh, it needs it as collateral. The city would lease uh, the expansion, and uh, while the debt is being paid off, it would pay uh, lease payments with food and beverage revenue, and the debt would be paid off in that way. 
Council member Steve Volan asked whether this agreement would comply with the state house when it comes to food and beverage tax. Is this agreement sufficient for us to eliminate the concern that our friends at the state house had that might have led them to rethink the food and beverage tax? I think if uh if what you're asking, Councilmember Volan, is uh, will this be an indicator of collaboration between the city and the county and an indicator that we are serious about pursuing the expanded convention center and using the money for that purpose, I think the answer is yes. And I think it's not just this agreement, but I think it is also you know, the fact that there's movement now, that the CIB has met a couple of times, that we have had conversations about next steps uh, and and uh, using funds that uh, were in the city's 2024 budget toward uh, certain expenditures that will support the CIB operations, what we're going to do with Schmidt, next steps. So, I mean, uh, yes, clear, I do. We, yeah. we have allocated money in the 2024 budget so yes. as to further the, the cause of a convention center. center. Yes. This agreement finally lays to rest that this is the completed negotiation between the city and county and any other entities involved to uh, to to get a move on. Uh, I believe so. Yes. I mean, that's yes. I think that we have uh, negotiated all with the goal of exactly what you just all mentioned the- with the goal of exactly that, uh, that we are uh, going to reach a collaborative approach to moving forward, and that's what this agreement will allow us to do. Council Member Dave Rollo questioned Corporation Council in what capacity would the City Council oversee the CIB budget. Kate responded. I'm wondering about the CIB, uh, the budget is reviewed by the City Council. How often does that occur in uh, the the review of the CIB's budget? For, uh, by... this by, this, by this body, yes. Okay. So I think the uh, what's contemplated here is that when there is uh, an expenditure of funds or a commitment of food and beverage funds or other city funds, then the CIB would be coming to the city council for approval of that. Now, with a bond issue that is going to be obviously an enormous user of food and beverage funds, um, then I think that... Uh, that's going to be one sort of approval of a lot of food and beverage. And so I don't know that at that point, you know, you'll you'll be looking at that point at what the CIB is bringing you in terms of we need this much bond money for this type of design, et cetera. And in that context, you're going to be seeing things like what's the design, what's the location, what's the scope, et cetera. Um, After that, I wouldn't expect that uh, just like with any other bond, you know, uh, approval, you're not going to be looking at the individual expenditures of bond payments on, you know, but, uh, but if there's other money, uh, that, uh, you know, is either sort of cash in the F and B account that is separate from money that may be called on to pay off the debt, uh, then they'll be back to you, um, for approval of that. I see. So any kind of appropriations or bond approval, Mm -hmm. they come to us. That's right. And then uh, after the construction is complete, the agreement contemplates both for the CIB and the CVC that there would be collaborative review and development and approval by the two councils of annual budgets for operation and maintenance. Yeah. Okay. Good. Thank you. Mm -hmm. Sure. The resolution was passed unanimously.
The next city council meeting will take place on Wednesday, December 6th. At the Monroe County Commissioner's meeting on November 8th, Health Department Director Lori Kelly gave an update on COVID-19 cases in the county. Uh, COVID hospitalizations, emergency room visits, and wastewater levels have all decreased over the past week. According to the CDC, HV1 is now the dominant COVID-19 variant that's circulating in the United States. It does not seem to cause more severe disease than other variants or escape immunity from the vaccines. Uh, we are monitoring flu and RSV. Generally in November, we begin to see increases, um, but they are still minimal at this time. And the public health clinic has vaccines available for COVID, influenza, and RSV. You can call 812-353-3244. Area 10 Agency on Aging Executive Director Chris Myers gave an update on rural transit numbers and usage across the county. Just wanted to kind of give you an update of where we are with transit and trips and system-wide. And um, uh, so for 2023, from January through October, rural transit, all four counties, remember we're four counties, um, has had 36,303 trips, which is an increase of about 12% over 2022 numbers. And then Monroe County specific, um, we've had 11,998 trips, um, so that's for the 10-month period, and that's actually an increase of 44% over that's last awesome. year. So still kind of starting to find that climb back up from COVID when it just tanked out, of course. But So that's good. Those are all great trends, um, and we're holding steady on that. Actually, system-wide, Putnam County um, is pretty close on par with the same kind of demand as as Monroe County, they used to be slightly lower, but they're 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 pretty close to where we are with um, the same sort of demand service that's going on. Um, just to give you an idea on revenue miles, uh, the average trip for this year system wide is 7.03 miles per trip. So again, showing that we're not like a city service. You know, we do put a lot of miles on the vehicles to provide those services. And Monroe County is actually 8.31 percent, 8.31 miles per trip. Um, we have successfully received all of the capital replacement vehicles for 2023 and are happy to work with Richard, who's been wonderful at Monroe County, getting new plates and dealing with all the BMV stuff. So we are in the process of going through the in-dot required disposal for those. Um, so we have the old ones that we have to take all the decals off and all the equipment out, and then we'll be disposing of those hopefully in the next few months. We go through that govdeals.com system. Um, so that works out great. And then um, just as a kind of a note to have, we attended, um, Lisa Salyers and I, who's the transit manager, and I attended the mandatory NDOT North-South meeting last month. And one of the things that uh, Todd Jennings, who's the program manager, brought up is the intent for them to really look at systems. They have a lot of different one-county systems in the state for rural transit, and they're looking at trying to get those combined into more like the regional, like we are a regional rural transit provider. And so that's a kind of five to 10 year process that they're looking at. But for us and our system, they're looking at possibly taking on Brown and Jackson County as well. So as that conversation happens, I certainly will bring that back to you all because you are the grantee. <laughs> and, um, and so we have to, of course, have your blessing to do that. But um, I know that I've talked with 
uh, the Brown County system, and they were actually pretty excited about the idea of that because there's a lot that we have expertise in just because of the nature of our size um, that would help them out tremendously. Commissioner Julie Thomas asked Myers to share how to schedule a ride and who is eligible to use their services. Myers responded. You can call our, you, know, you can call Area 10, just in general, Area 10, but we're, we are, rural transit is 812-876-1079, and one of our dispatchers will help you, you know, get scheduled, and you can schedule for any purpose, anybody can ride, so it can be any age, any ability or non-mobility you know, issues, so um, we're happy to help anybody in the county. I yeah. think that's one of the biggest myths, is that yeah. it's only for a particular abilities or particular yeah. ages, and it is open to everyone in the county. And yeah, it's we, a wonderful service. Um, and I also want to thank you for your ongoing work uh, as we continue to dissect um, how we're going to manage this shift of January 1st, 2024, um, with between uh, the city and Ellisville and, and Monroe County. So thank you for that. Later in the meeting, Highway Department Director Lisa Ridge asked the commissioners to approve a change order for a portable stoplight on Sample Road. Good morning. Um, we had to make some modifications when Sample Road um, was being built at the intersection of Old 37 North and Sample Road um, due to a gas main uh, being within the area. So to eliminate um, any damage to that, we ended up having a portable uh, traffic signal so that we could keep the road open at least to one lane um, and not have to uh, deal with the gas main. The commissioners approved the change order unanimously. Lastly, Commissioner Penny Givens informed the public that they are accepting applications for appointments to boards and commissions. Uh, we are accepting applications for some boards and commissions and many of the current um, appointments will end either December 31st or January 15th or early in the year. So there will be openings again for next year. The next Monroe County Commissioner's meeting will be held on November 15th. Up next, we have an excerpt from KiteLine, our public affairs program devoted to prison issues in the Midwest and beyond. You can hear Kite Line each Friday at 5.30 p.m. on WFHB. We turn now to that segment on the WFHB Local News. On today's Kite Line, we're sharing more research conducted collectively by Mikol Siegel's Inside Out class. Last spring, this course brought together students at IU and students held by the Indiana Department of Corrections. This presentation is focused on the tension between surveillance and surveillance, a term for when apparatuses like social media and smartphones are turned around and used against state violence and official abuses. Here they are. Hey, this is Gilbert Bay, and uh, my group uh, is bringing to you social media and surveillance. Is your phone listening to you? Um, this segment this segment is brought to you by Gilbert Bay, Kate, Holly, Kabir, and Fish from the Inside Out Exchange Program. This segment details how surveillance and social media are interconnected. As a general public, we are willfully ignorant to surveillance capitalism by handing over our privacy in exchange for personalization and our social lives. 
We can become so wrapped up in the entertainment of social media that we neglect our personal privacy by revealing personal data to be surveilled on social sites by other users and by the company. This presentation also sheds light on TikTok in the prison system and why inmates legally smuggle cellular devices in the prisons. If inmates were allowed phones legally, it would be a checks and balance for the admin and staff and could potentially save a life. Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg describes this industry as one of the ways that America shares its values with the world and one of our greatest economic and cultural exports. Zuckerberg is right. Facebook represents a slew of American values, capitalism, surveillance, secrecy, and parasitism. Shoshana Zuboff coined the term surveillance capitalism in her book, Surveillance Capitalism and the Challenge of Collective Action. According to Zuboff, surveillance capitalism is the monetization of a user's private experience by big tech companies and Facebook is the poster child. Facebook harvests and monetizes the personal data of billions of users and keeps an omnipresent eye on our digital lives. Facebook's profiling practices have explored how to manipulate emotions, target based on personality, and even target vulnerabilities, taking notice of when users felt hopeless or insecure. In 2017, Facebook created a 23-page document for potential advertisers, featuring the company's ability to micro-target advertisements down to moments when young people need a confidence boost. A report by The Australian revealed that Facebook had been surveilling posts, photos, interactions, and internet activity in real time to track the emotional highs and lows of teenagers. Facebook claimed that the monitoring of younger users was never used to target ads, but the research itself was commissioned by an advertiser. Facebook not only aims to predict future behavior of its users, but to change and shape their behavior. In a study conducted by academics from the University of California and Cornell, Facebook filtered the news feeds of several users. They found that a decrease in positive emotional content resulted in a decrease in positive posts and an increase in negative posts. When exposed to an increase of negative emotional content, the inverse occurred. Researchers Adam Kramer, Jamie Guillory, and Jeffrey Hancock came to the conclusion that emotions expressed by friends via online social networks influence our own moods, constituting, to our knowledge, the first experimental evidence for massive-scale emotional contagion via social networks. Engagement and advertising are the two primary concerns at the forefront of Facebook's agenda. With this newfound discovery that filtering content keeps users happy and engaged, Who's to say that Facebook will not continue to filter feeds to keep people active? Such manipulation could be used to encourage people to stay on the site by feeding them happy content, and thus increasing advertising revenue. After all, the most accurate way for surveillance capitalists to predict user behavior is to intervene at its source and shape it, to quote from Shoshana Zuboff. While emotional manipulation and vulnerability-based targeting are undoubtedly important tactics Facebook employs to monetize users' private experience, Facebook could never overlook the heart of the user themselves, their own personality. The BBC has revealed an email chain between Facebook staff and University of Cambridge psychologists discussing data analysis to infer users' personality traits and using said data to target adverts. The social network filed a patent describing how certain personality traits such as emotional stability, conscientiousness, openness, and introversion versus extroversion can be identified through users' status updates and messages. 
This personality data could be stored and later used to select news stories, advertisements, or recommendations of actions presented to the user. This psychographic advertising is extremely invasive and raises a plethora of ethical concerns. Behavioral manipulation holds the power to jeopardize our autonomy to form opinions and make independent choices, which effectively undermines our dignity. To illustrate, the Ted Cruz campaign and the Trump campaign paid Cambridge Analytica to analyze the data points of Facebook users in swing states and target advertisements accordingly in 2016. After gathering 5,000 data points on each American voter, Cambridge Analytica used this data to target voters in swing states who they deemed persuadable after assessing their personalities. Whether it be through the user's political orientation, emotions, or personality, Facebook's main goal is to profile their users to the most accurate degree possible. Support for WFHB Local News is brought to you by MPI Solar, a Bloomington business specializing in solar hot water, solar electricity, and solar hot air systems. MPI Solar designs and installs solar power generation systems that encourage independence and individual responsibility. More information online at mpisolarenergy.com. You've been listening to the WFHB Local News. Today's headlines were written by Annika Harshbarger, Ashley Voss, Kate Young, and Noel Herhusky-Schneider in partnership with CATS, Community Access Television Services. Our theme music is provided by Mark Bingham and the Social Climbers. For WFHB, this is your engineer and executive producer, Cade Young. And I'm Benedict Jones. Thanks for supporting Indiana's only volunteer-powered, listener-supported, independent daily news program. You can hear tonight's full broadcast online at WFHB.org. The WFHB Local News is also available as a podcast. Just search our call letters WFHB wherever you listen to your podcasts. Subscribe to never miss another local news program. Stay tuned for Big Talk, a one-on-one conversation with some of Bloomington's most fascinating people. Coming up next on WFHB. WFHB Local News on WFHB Community Radio. Our news is written and reported by volunteers working to provide local news, cover local issues, and strengthen our local community. We invite you to participate. You may submit questions, comments, and story ideas to news at WFHB.org. You can become a WFHB Local News Volunteer by attending New Volunteer Orientation. Feel free to check out the WFHB Local News Archive at WFHB.org to find newscasts, individual stories, and catch a live feed of the WFHB Local News. We are local, longer, 